Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're drawing very close to the end of our study of Hebrews. And we have been looking at, for this past few weeks, since we've been in chapter 13, some of the signs of apostasy or signs of spiritual decline, uh, signs of backsliding in our lives. And we've already looked at, in the first few verses, uh, some of the signs. First of all, our love for others grows cold when people are or not so concerned about the faith anymore, the first thing that goes is usually a, a love and concern for others, uh, a self-centeredness. And that, uh, that another mark we saw in verse 4 uh, was uh, that uh, marriage is not held in honor and sexual immorality is on the rise. And then we looked at last week the love of money. We want comfort in this world. We want... We're not content with the suffering and trials and difficulties of the Christian life, and we want the easy life, but the Lord is with us. And now today, we come to the problem of disillusionment, disillusionment. And I think there's a lot of disillusionment with the Christian faith in our culture today. So let's uh, stand together, if you're able, and let us read God's Word from Hebrews 13, 7 through 17 where God's Word says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. For those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Please be seated. Throughout the history of the church, there has been apostasy, professing believers who end up rejecting the faith. Early on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, there was great crowds that were following Jesus at the time, but Jesus is teaching there that he's the bread of life, and, and that whole discourse on the bread of life led some of his disciples to turn back and no longer walk with him. And they turned away because they didn't like what Jesus was teaching at that point. And then later in the Gospels, you have the most famous apostate, of course, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And then Paul uh, mentions by name Demas. Demas is mentioned three times 
in Paul's letters. Twice he is included at the end of letters where he is included in the greetings. Demas sends you greetings. So Demas was present with Paul uh, there with him. And as he wrote to churches, Demas was included in the greetings along with Luke and others, uh, other companions of Paul. But in, in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, he writes that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So there's several examples in the New Testament of apostasy. Uh, and the New Testament is filled with warnings against abandoning the faith or embracing false teaching leading to apostasy. And this letter to Hebrews, of course, is primarily addressing this temptation to abandon the faith, or as verse 9 puts it in what we just read, to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, it was a challenge for them in the New Testament era. It's a challenge for us today in our current environment. There's much pressure from our culture to abandon Christianity as it has been believed for over 2,000 years. All of a sudden, people are claiming that Christian, Christianity has had it wrong for two millennia. And not only have we got it wrong, our teachings are actually now considered immoral. The prime example being homosexuality, uh, another being what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement, which just means that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died as a sacrifice for sins in the place of his people. He, he underwent the wrath of his, of his heavenly Father on our behalf. The wrath that belonged to us was poured out on Jesus. Some people say that that is no longer uh, should be believed. That's cosmic child abuse and is immoral. And recently there have been a number of high-profile deconversion stories. Now, when I say deconversion, what I mean is when a, a person who is deeply committed to the Christian faith or has been deeply committed to the Christian faith ends up leaving the Christian faith and abandoning their prior beliefs. Sometimes this involves a wholesale rejection of the faith, of their prior belief in Christianity. People like Bart Ehrman or Joshua Harris, these Names may not mean anything to you, but uh, they are uh, of the higher profile variety. Uh, in other cases, it doesn't mean that you've abandoned Christianity altogether, but uh, in other cases it involves embracing an altogether different version of the faith. People like Rob Bell or Jen Hatmaker recently. And it's not enough for these people to just quietly stop being Christians or stop believing what they once believed. They now have to evangelize for their newfound positions. They speak of how, yes, they were once in the faith, but they were duped, and now they've been enlightened. Their old way was ignorant and anti-intellectual, and now they've got the truth. And they seek to recruit others to join them in their apostasy. We need to be on the lookout for such people and the writers uh, in the New Testament especially were constantly reminding their readers to be on the lookout for false teaching. The fact of the matter is that these people in our day and time are just like Demas, who was in love with this present world. You always notice that these deconversion stories, these apostates, 
their new so-called faith is always more palatable to the present world. And now the world is not so hostile to them. In fact, the world loves them. They love to hear these stories. Well, the writer of Hebrews helps us to see and navigate this temptation. Diverse and strange teachings are attractive when persecution and tribulation because of following Jesus arises. When the heat of persecution is turned up, when the eyes of the world look, look unfavorably on Christianity, that's when we're tempted to say, well, Christianity or this particular version of it that I'm following just isn't working for me. We want the good life, and, but our life is miserable because of the positions that we have to take, of the beliefs that we hold to. And we think, well, perhaps I'm doing it wrong, or perhaps there's an easier way. That's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing here. Disillusionment with the faith handed down through the ages. It's as relevant to us now as it was then. And let's look at how he addresses this problem. Basically, he's going to make the same point that the Lord made through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 and following, where through Jeremiah the Lord says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Let me read that again. The Lord says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah goes on, But they said, We will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, Pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not pay attention. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. There's a stern warning from Jeremiah and a stern warning for us today. And the writer of Hebrews is reiterating that, that command to stick to the old paths, the ancient paths where you can find rest for your souls. Now, he's doing two things today and two things I want to look at. First of all, his argument in verses 7 through 12 and then the implications of what he's saying in 13 through 17. Well, let's look at the argument he's making here. The most important verse is verse 8. Verse 8, this famous verse, such a, a grand, wonderful statement. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the logic he's, he's, he's arguing here is that if Jesus is the same and has not changed and will not change, then there's no need to follow strange and diverse teachings. The word strange particularly. In the Greek it means not being previously known and hence unheard of and unfamiliar, unknown, unheard of, unfamiliar, surprising. Someone 
comes along and gives you some new teaching that you've never heard of, that, that no one's ever known, and they're telling you they've finally figured it out after 2,000 years of church history, you better be suspect of that person. And that is why he begins, verse 7, with their past leaders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. These are leaders that they had back, that maybe they're no longer with us, with them. Uh, Leaders that had gone on to to be with the Lord. Uh, They spoke to them the word of God. And he's telling them, look, look at their lives. Look at the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. They stuck to the old paths. They taught you the old paths. They taught you the way of Jesus. Follow that example. And that's a challenge for us as current leaders. He goes on in verse 17 to say, uh, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Anybody that is a leader in the church, whether whether you're uh, an elder or a deacon or you're involved in the women in the church, whatever the case might be, in any kind of leadership position, you're supposed to be watching over the souls of the flock, of Jesus' flock. So it's very, very important that leaders stick to the old paths and teach the old paths, the way of Christ. But what we see today is a lot of leaders in the church at large more interested in their own kingdoms than Jesus' kingdom. We see them building mega churches and then falling from the faith, falling into sexual sin, falling into greed, falling into all kinds of vice. And some leaders are more interested in psychology than the gospel. They want you to have your best life now, and their sermons are more like psychiatry, uh, psychiatry sessions than preaching the gospel. It's a temptation for us because we are a very therapeutic society. We, want, we love therapy. We want therapy. And it's tempting as a preacher to give therapy. There is something to be said for therapy and psychology and psychiatry. These are useful tools for sure. But the task of the leader, the task of the preacher particularly, is to preach Christ crucified. So be careful to whom you are listening. Always check it with the Word of God, especially if it's something you've never heard before. Now some of you are new to the faith. It's all new to you. You've never heard any of it, perhaps. Check it with the Word of God, always. The same applies. So the truth has not changed. Jesus Christ, the truth about Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And not only has the truth not changed, but the grace has not changed. Notice in verse 9 where he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart... To be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now he's talking about these strange teachings. Uh, They had to do with food, uh, food of sacrificial feasts. These false teachers apparently maintained that because the readers were not taking part in the ritual life of the temple or the tent, the tabernacle, uh, that's the word he's using there, 
including the sacrificial feasts. They weren't participating in that, so therefore they had no access to God. The author responds that grace, not ceremonial food, strengthens our hearts. For by grace we participate in the worship at the heavenly altar where Jesus, is, where Jesus ministers. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll, you'll know that food sacrifice was, was a big deal in the New Testament era for both the Jews and for pagans, for Gentiles. Here in Hebrews, the sacrifices have to do with Jewish rituals, the Jewish ritual system, the sacrifice system. Elsewhere in the New Testament... The controversy over food had to do with whether or not to eat food sacrificed to pagan idols. So food back then was a big deal, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. They were always uh, needing to have instruction about it because it was a controversial subject. Well, today we have different controversies, of course. We're not worried about food so much except where our next meal is coming from and what's for lunch today. But the question remains the same. How is the heart strengthened? How is the heart strengthened? It's not strengthened by food, but by grace. Is it by rituals? No. Is it by following new, a newfangled worldly sexual ethic or any other ethic for that matter? No. It is, is the heart strengthened by softening our stance on the atonement? Absolutely not. In fact, the writer of Hebrews leans in on the atonement here. It is the grace of Christ crucified that strengthens the heart. Now he's talking about here in verses 10 through 12, he's referring to the day of atonement, or Yom Kippur, as some of you may know it. And you can read about that in Leviticus 16. It was a very special day. It was the most important day of the Jewish calendar. And to prepare for the sacrifices of the day, the high priest put aside his official robes and dressed up in a simple white garment. He then offered a bull as a sin offering for himself and the priesthood. And after filling his censer with live coals from the altar, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies where he placed incense on the coals. The incense sent forth a cloud of smoke over the mercy seat, which was at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and the high priest then took some of the blood of the bull and sprinkled it on the mercy seat and on the ground in front of the ark. And in this way, the atonement was made for the priesthood. Next, they had two goats, and they took one by lot uh, to be a, sa a sacrifice, a sin offering for the people. And some of the blood, again, was taken into the Holy of Holies, and it was, was sprinkled there in the same way that he had done for the bull and for the sin offering for the priesthood. The other goat, the, the, the high priest laid his hand on top of the goat and confessed the sins of all the people. A long list, I'm sure, because it was a whole year's worth. And then they sent that goat away, the scapegoat. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. The scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness, symbolizing that the, the sins were removed from them. And then... The carcasses of the two burnt offerings, the bull and the, and the goat, were taken outside the city and burnt. And the day was concluded with some additional 
sacrifices. So the writer here in verse 10 says, we have an altar which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have a sacrifice, because the sacrifice is not separate from the altar. That's what he's referring to. We have the sacrifice, namely Jesus. And the people who serve the tent, who are causing this controversy, possibly, they've got no right to it. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. They were defiled. They were sin offerings. And the person that went out there and burned them, he had to go through a whole ceremony of, ceremony to be washed and cleansed from doing that job. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's talking about that one sacrifice, and that's what he's pointing us to. B.F. Westcott in his commentary says this. This is really great. Primarily, there is but one sacrifice for the Christian and one means of support. The sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, on the cross and the participating in him. The only earthly altar is the cross on which Christ offered himself. Christ is the offering. He is himself the feast of the believer. The altar is not regarded at any time apart from the victim. It is the source of the support of which the Christian partakes. When the idea of the one act of sacrifice predominates, the image of the cross rises before us. When the idea of our continuous support, then the image of Christ living through death prevails. The superiority which the Christian enjoyed over the Jew became most conspicuous when the highest point in each order was reached. The great sacrifice for sin on the Day of Atonement was wholly consumed, though they who served the tabernacle were partakers with the altar, even those who were most privileged had no right to eat this offering. They took the offering out and burnt it outside the gate. No one partook of it. But Christ, who is our sacrifice for sin, the perfect antitype of that symbol, is our food also. He is our atonement. He is our support. He died as a sin offering outside the gate. And he lives to be our life by the communication of himself. By his blood, he entered into the archetypal sanctuary and made a way for us. And he waits to guide us thither. Meanwhile, we have become partakers of Christ and live with the power of his life, which in his own appointed way, he brings to us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We need not look anywhere else for strength and grace. Yesterday, he lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice for sin, rose victorious over death, the first fruits of those who die in him. And he ascended into heaven and he lives to intercede there for his people. And today he is still interceding for his people. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul 
is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My guarantee is what a surety is. And my name is written on His hands. Your name, if you're a believer, is written on His hands and He is right now interceding for you. You don't need anything new. You don't need anything diverse or strange. You need Jesus. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood for sin did once atone and now it pleads before the throne. Five bleeding wounds He bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. He is still the same today, and he has gone to prepare a place for his people and will return so that we can live, as verse 14 said, in that lasting city that is to come. Now, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's about holiness. That's what the word sanctify means, holiness. God, or Jesus died in order to make us holy, to cleanse us from sin and wash us so that we might be uh, holy and grow in holiness and one day be perfect in holiness. So we don't need a newfangled sexual ethic. We don't need any other crazy ethic out there. We need Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now there's a few implications for this. We read in verse 13 through 17 where he applies it to us. Verse 13, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, don't be ashamed. Jesus is great. Let's identify with him and not shy away from the reproach that the world has for Jesus Christ and the old paths. I told you all how bad our football team was when I was in high school. And I played football from the, from the time I was six years old through my senior year of high school where it came to a merciful end. It was brutal, and I was very skinny, and uh, I'm not sure why I even played football because I shied away from contact. I could run ten times faster with a ball in my hand on the football field than I could any other time because I was running for my life. I was so scared. I didn't like to get hit, and I wasn't much of a hitter. I shied away from the contact. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Let's go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured to proudly identify with Christ and, and what the world brings, let it bring. We belong to him. We don't have a lasting city here, he goes on to say. We're not invested in this world. Yes, we're trying to represent Christ here, but it's not about this world. It's about the city that is to come. This world is not our home, and the goal is not to have comfort here necessarily. So let us, verse 15, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Again, acknowledging His name proudly, in public, continually offering up that praise to Him. 
And then 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The sacrifices we need to be involved in are not at the temple, he says, but the sacrifices of doing good and sharing with others, helping one another, representing Christ to the world, showing the love of Christ to others. And then he has the word for leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Make sure that your leaders are following the old paths and make sure that we as your leaders are watching over your souls. And in turn, let us do this with joy and not with groaning. I think the writer of Hebrews was groaning a bit because he's writing to these people and he's pleading with them and and arguing with them and pointing them to Jesus and trying to keep them from turning away from the faith, encouraging them and doing all that he can to keep them faithful and true to the Lord. And we all ought to be doing the same in the church to encourage one another, build one another up, and make it a priority. Well, Jeremiah 6 again. The Lord says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And I think Jesus picked this up when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that invitation that he extended when he lived is still an invitation today because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. What a What a gift it is that we have your word and we give you thanks and praise for it. We love your word and we pray that you would write its truth upon our hearts, especially the fact that Jesus Christ is is the only Savior of sinners and Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords and we should all come to him with all of our burdens heavy laden and find our sin removed our conscience cleansed, and our, our whole being become a new creature in Christ. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, that they would embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior by simply calling upon him, turning from sin and asking for forgiveness and, and inviting you to be Lord of their lives. Lord, I pray that we would all do that afresh and anew, true repentance, and true faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.